I don't know if you've heard this uh, Sherlock Holmes joke. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson were out camping one day. It's an old joke, but I want to share it this morning because um, it kind of fits our, our message this morning. They, pe- they pitched their tent under the stars and went to sleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, Holmes woke up Watson and said, Watson, look up at the stars. Tell me what you see. Watson said, I see millions of stars. Holmes asks, well, what does that tell you? Watson replies, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and we are small and insignificant. Horologically, it tells me that it's about 3 a.m., Meteorologically, it tells me that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Proudly, he asks, what does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes retorts, someone stole our tent, stupid. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. (laughs) But uh, that kind of sets the scene of where we're at today. It's the Festival of Booths in the New Testament here, where, where Jesus is. Uh, chapters 7 and 8 uh, go together. And uh, the Festival of Booths is a commemoration. It's an annual commemoration where the, fam- the Jewish families get out of their house and they live in temporary shelters, kind of like tent camping, for a whole week. And it's to commemorate, it's to remember what God did for Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, how he cared for them. And so here Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the Festival of Booths. Um, all week long, uh, there have, there's been this giant candelabra, a menorah, in the Court of Women, which is just outside the temple in Jerusalem. This candelabra is huge. Uh, Historians say that it was most likely about 75 feet tall. And uh, each candle, the the, uh, container containing the oil that gave light to the candle, each container contained 10 gallons of oil. And this candelabra was lit throughout the the night uh, for all seven nights. And now here Jesus is in chapter 8, we're coming to verse 12, and it's the end of that celebration, and, uh, and uh, the lights have most likely gone out, and scholars believe that it's at this very moment that Jesus makes his point, his proclamation of who he is. And so in John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, when Jesus made that declaration, the Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. Because the light that they looked to, and that they depended upon all week, represented Uh, God in the Old Testament and how God had provided for the needs of Israel. The light symbolized 
uh, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And when that light goes out, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. And we're going to look at that this morning and what that means. I want us to look at three things. I want, to, I want us to look at Jesus' credentials regarding the light, uh, just exactly what Jesus was claiming when he said he was the light of the world, and then number three, his call to us. What does that mean to us as followers of the light? Let's look first at his credentials. Jesus' credentials as light. Light symbolized Jehovah God. This isn't in your outline this morning, but write down Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. David said this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. King David knew that Jehovah God was his light, was his salvation. If you go to the the, uh, book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies of a coming light that was going to give Israel a hope for the future. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land, in a land of deep darkness, and on them has light shone. This is the Messiah who is to come. And if you look at Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1 and Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 2, they know that this is the light, this baby Jesus that's coming on the scene, that's being dedicated in the temple. This is the light that Isaiah refers to in Isaiah chapter 9. We also see it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Uh, You can read those later. But prophets, priests, and kings all said a light was coming that was going to shine in the darkness of people's light, and they will see a great light. These are Jesus' credentials. This isn't what Jesus said about himself. This is what people said before him as Jesus was about to come on the scene. Next. What is Jesus claiming uh, as when he says that he is the light? Understand that this moment in John 8, 12, Feast of Booths, it was no accident. Just like we looked at Christ last week uh, in John chapter 6 when it was the Feast of Passover. And Jesus was saying it was God who fed the, the, the Jews in the wilderness. Moses prayed for bread, but God fed, fed the Israelites for 40 years. Bread from heaven, manna. And Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the God who fed the Israelites um, in the wilderness. And now here we are in John chapter 8. Feast of Booths, and Jesus is saying, I am the light that that was with Israel in the wilderness. I am the light of the world. He's not saying that he is a light or one of the lights or the person who's holding the light or 
the, the way to the light, Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world. He is the Shekinah glory. Just as the Jews all week long had been looking to this light for dependence to get them throughout the week in their, their, um, in their tents, and that just as they're being reminded that this, is, this light sustained them in the wilderness, Jesus is now saying, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? Number one, it means that the light, Jesus, is the presence of God. The light is God's presence. Look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The Lord went before them. The Lord was in the cloud. God's presence was in the cloud. God's presence was the light. And as you look at what what the Bible says about Jesus and the Lord's presence in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just as God's presence didn't leave Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus says, neither will I leave you nor forsake you. God never changes. The Bible says God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And here Jesus is standing before the Jews. They're commemorating 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, I am that light. I am that cloud. Just as I was with them then, I am with you today. And for us this morning in this service, Jesus is here now. The light represents God's presence. Second, the light represents God's guidance. God's guidance. Look what Jesus says, the last part of verse 12. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of of lights. If we follow him, he will guide the way. Just as the Israelites followed the cloud in the Old Testament, you have Numbers 9, verses 17 through 23. You can read that later. But just as the cloud guided Israel in the wilderness, when it moved, they moved. When it stayed, they stayed. When it left the, the tabernacle and began to move, they they collapsed the tabernacle, they collapsed their tents, and they followed the cloud. It guided them. Jesus says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Jesus is your guide. Jesus is our presence. And number three, when Jesus says he's a light, he's saying the light represents God's protection. God's protection. 
If you go back and look at Exodus, when the Israelites were at the Red Sea, and they were at a dead end, they couldn't go any further because the Dead Sea, they couldn't cross the Dead Sea. Um, uh, They just couldn't do it. And the Egyptians were hot on their tail. What did God do? God came. God came down in the cloud, and the cloud separated the Egyptians from the Israelites. The cloud blinded the eyes of the Egyptians, and while their eyes were blinded, the Bible says that God parted the Red Sea. Israel was able to cross. When the cloud went up, the Egyptians began to pursue again, and they were destroyed by the Red Sea as they tried to cross. The cloud was God's protection to the Israelites. God was a cloud by day in the desert, in the desert. We know what it's like to live in the desert, don't we? We know what it's like to live in temperatures of 110, 115, 120 degrees. Well, what happens when clouds come on days like that? Well, you know, a lot of times we kind of moan and groan because that means it's really humid, okay? But then there are times where that cloud, when it becomes between us and the sun, it provides shelter. It provides shade. And we go, oh, that feels good. That's who God was to the Israelites in the wilderness. He was that cloud by day. He was that pillar of fire by night. Maybe he helped keep the Israelites warm in the middle of winter in the desert. He was that heating blanket. Who knows? But God's, that God's presence protected them in the desert. <clears throat> what are you going through today? Are you living in fear? Are you facing some circumstances this morning that you need God's presence? You need God's protection? You need God's guidance? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. You need to look at Jesus, I was um, praying on the phone with Allison Rash yesterday. The Rashes are going through a hard time right now. Her brother just passed away on on Thursday. They're in a mood, in the middle of a move to to another house, and I just reminded. Encouraged her, reminded her that God was with her. And she knows that. She's dependent on God. And don't hear me say that when we follow God, that all that things will always be wonderful. They're not. This isn't in your outline this morning, but turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 
Verse 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by, by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Look what he says. When you pass through the waters, when you go through the rivers, when you walk through the fire. When we follow God, when we follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that we're going to avoid those things. No, we're going to go through those things. But God's presence promises to be with us. He promises to guide us and protect us. It will not consume us. If you're a follower of Christ, and even if you die in those things, guess what? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. You don't lose with Christ. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming before the city. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's our call? Or before before I go there, let me just say this about what Jesus is conveying to us. What, what the Apostle John understands and was conveying to us last week and what we see in chapters 7 and 8 this morning. John, Jesus, they want us to be crystal clear in knowing who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the great I am of Exodus chapter 3. When God revealed himself to Moses, and Moses asked, Whom shall I say sent me? Jesus says, Tell them, I am sent you. I am Jehovah God Almighty, the God of salvation. We saw Jesus last week say, I am the bread of life. Today he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he tells uh, the, the, the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. The God we worship today in Jesus Christ is the same God of the Old Testament. It's the same God in this New Testament, and he never changes. We worship the triune God. The Father, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But all three are the manifestation of the same God. This is what we believe as Christians. And I'll come back to that in a moment. What's our call as followers of Christ? 
What's Jesus' call to you? Number one is live with consistency and integrity. Consistency, integrity. Whoever follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness. In order to walk in the light, we must follow Christ consistently. This needs to be our character, our nature. And God promises to be with us. Number two, live attractively. Live attractively. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you live attractively? Do people see Jesus in you? As people watch your life, do they want to glorify your Father? We contain the light of the world. Jesus lives in us. Jesus' light shines on us. We are, we are not the light. Jesus is the light. And just as the moon radiates the sun, uh, the light of the sun, so we radiate the light of, of God the Son. We are to live attractively, to be a godly witness And the third thing that Jesus calls us to do is he calls us to live courageously. Live courageously. Sometimes for us to shine our light takes courage. It's not always easy. Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are not to hide our light. We are to shine our light. And sometimes that means exposing the deeds of darkness. We're not to do that in an ugly ugly way, in a condescending way where we come across as greater or holier than them. No, we need to come across in a loving and gentle and caring way that just as we've experienced the grace of God, uh, and other than the grace of God, only the grace of God makes us who we are today. We have nothing to brag about in ourselves. But there are some times where, and I'm not talking about non-Christians. The Bible says we're not to judge non-Christians. But we are to police ourselves. We are to police the Christian community. And sometimes when people are living disobedient lives, we have a responsibility to go to them and share truth with them. Look at Philippians chapter 2. It says, For One time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus calls us to live courageously. And sometimes living courageously means you need to do the hard thing. And it's not always easy. And oftentimes when you go to someone who's living in sin, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of warm fuzzies from that conversation. And sometimes the conversation won't go the way you want it to go. And you just have to go in a spirit of prayer and humility and grace and love and do the right thing and trust God. But people living in sin don't want to have light exposed on their darkness. But as Christians, church, it's our responsibility. And don't just leave it to the pastor. Don't wait for the pastor to do something about it. If you know someone who's living in sin, you have firsthand knowledge of this. You go. Some of you work in environments where you're the only light and it's been very difficult. And you've had to live courageously and it hasn't been easy. God sees you. God knows your circumstances. And in God's providence, he's protecting you. I want to give one example of courage that uh, has come across our, the news recently. Um, and that involved in a, a political rally that took place a few weeks ago. And there was a pastor who stood up at this political rally. His name was uh, Robert Jeffries. He's the pastor at uh, First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, big church. And he endorsed a particular candidate. And uh, he, he uh, basically said that Mormonism is a cult. And boy, did that light a huge storm of controversy when he said those words. And the reason why they're so controversial is because, church, we live in a biblically illiterate culture. Culture doesn't know the truth from error. And when Dr. Jeffries made that statement, he was correct in making that statement. But when you say Mormonism is a cult, you know, the extreme comes to mind. People begin to associate Mormonism with uh, David Koresh or Jim Jones, and they put them in that extreme, wacko category. And that's not the category that our culture finds Mormonism in. Uh, Mormonism has become very mainstream. And the Mormon community here in Ridgecrest is very large. And you probably know many Mormons. And you know what? They are outstanding individuals 
uh, citizens. They're very moral. Um, you know, going back a few years to Prop 8, had it not been for the Mormon church and standing up for the definition of marriage, Prop 8 probably wouldn't have passed. And so you know, we look at the Mormon community and we think, gosh, they're so good. They must be Christians. And, and so when people hear a Southern Baptist pastor say that Mormonism is a cult, man, it really puts Southern Baptists in a, in a negative light. But here was a pastor who here, here is a pastor who is a shepherd who is warning the flock of, of air, of, of wolves. And it is our responsibility to stand for the truth and communicate the truth and educate the people of God. Now, this isn't a slam on Mick, Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney. It's, this isn't a plus or a minus. We are not electing a pastor. Okay? We are electing a future president. And he may very well be the candidate that is one of two choices for president in the days ahead. But we need to know the truth about Mormonism. Now, I want to read the ESV. I I love the ESV Bible. And there's a definition for uh, what defines a cult in the Bible. It says this. Any religious movement that claims to be derived from the Bible and or of the Christian faith and that advocates beliefs that differ so significantly with major Christian doctrines that two consequences follow. Number one, the movement cannot legitimately be considered a valid Christian denomination because it's because of its serious deviation from historic Christian orthodoxy. Number two, believing the doctrines of the movement is incompatible with trusting in the Jesus Christ of the Bible for the salvation that comes by grace alone. And in light of that definition of what a cult is, Mormonism certainly is a cult. Not like Jim Jones or David Koresh, but it deviates from the gospel. It deviates from the person of Jesus Christ. Now I say this because we are in John chapter 8. And Jesus is telling us, I am the God who took care of Israel in the wilderness. I am the great I am. I am God. Now, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses too, but Mormons say Jesus isn't God. Jesus, Jesus is the Son of the Father, but he's not God. You go to the Mormon website, mormons.com, uh, I encourage you to go. It, it's a very attractive, impressive website. You read through who they are on the surface, and you would want you would come to the conclusion that they're just like us. But it's what's beneath the surface where they teach these things about Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus is God. 
Jesus is the son of the father, just like Satan was the son of the father, just like you and I are children of the father. He's not the creator. He wasn't there in the beginning. So this is what they believe about Jesus. What else they believe about Jesus is that Jesus' death on the cross did not pay for all of our sin. When we believe that about Jesus, that he did die for our sin, we acquire a grace that helps us live in obedience to him so that we can eventually obtain eternal life. They believe in a general grace. We believe as Christians that we are justified by his grace through faith. Only in believing what Jesus has already done for us on the cross can our sin be completely be completely forgiven. Justified means that I've been made righteous in the eyes of God. And that doesn't come through good works. Now, good works are a result of my salvation, of the grace in me. I want to live for God, but in Mormonism, you've got to live for God in order to obtain eternal life. These are huge These are huge differences between Christianity and Mormonism, a church that we need to be aware of. As a church, we have a responsibility to preserve the witness of what God's word says and the gospel. And the gospel is this, faith in Christ and Christ alone is what saves. When we believe that Jesus, when I believe that Jesus died for my sin, I was a sinner and I needed God's forgiveness. When I believe that Jesus took my place on that cross, he took on the wrath of God that I deserved. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. And this is what we are to guard, protect, and proclaim. We can't afford, church, in today's culture, to erase the lines between Christianity and Mormonism. They're not one and the same. They're diametrically opposed to each other. And we have a responsibility to proclaim that. Now, maybe you're here and you're saying, well, pastor, in order for me to be saved, do I need to know the Trinity? Is that part of salvation? I say no. You know, Rachel, um, little uh, Rachel Wetzel uh, became a Christian uh, this week. Uh, Mom and dad uh, led her to the Lord, and she's five years old. I doubt she understands the Trinity. You know what? There's a lot of Christians, adults here in this room, who don't understand the Trinity. It's a hard concept to understand. 
That's not most important. What's most important is what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's central. But as we grow in our faith in Christ and as we learn about who God is, who Jesus is in the Bible, that he is God, that uh, he, he was God manifested in the flesh and that he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross and uh, rose again from the grave. These are things that we're not to reject. And true believers who came come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that eventually learn these things, these important orthodox truths of Scripture, they won't reject them. And if they're in a church that doesn't teach these things, they will walk away from that church and find a church who does. Mark Driscoll, he's a pastor in um, Seattle, Washington. He wrote a um, he wrote a paper on is Mormon is Mormonism a cult? Uh, that just shortly after um, this all thing this whole thing came out after the political rally. I've got a few copies in the Connection Center that if you want to read this, it's a really good um, really good article. But I just want to read. Um, the last part of this for us this morning says this. So what do we make of all this? Simply said, by the theological definition, Mormonism is a cult. As the presidential race heats up and the prospect of a practicing Mormon as a viable Republican candidate becomes more, more a reality, there will be continued effort to bring Mormonism into the center of Christian orthodoxy. Thus, it's important to understand what the cult of Mormonism teaches, to understand that it is that it's antithetical to Christianity, and that while it's certain that there are some Christians in the Mormon Church who love the Jesus of the Bible and don't understand or agree with what their church teaches, the Mormon Church could never be considered orthodox unless it made some serious and massive changes to its theology. The danger facing the Christian church is always to capitulate to culture. As Mormonism becomes more culturally acceptable, the temptation will be to make Mormonism more acceptable to Christians as well. This can't happen if the church is to preserve its witness in the world to the true triune God of the Bible as worshipped by Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant Christians alike. Many Mormons are good friends, neighbors, friends, and fellow citizens, but we cannot go so far as to call them brothers and sisters in a common faith. To do so is not only is not only con- to do so is to not only confuse real Christians, but to also diminish the importance of lovingly speaking with Mormons about the errors of their beliefs in hopes of seeing them come to know the real God of the Bible and avoiding eternal damnation for worshiping a false God. Stand courageously for the truth. That's our call as Christians.
But do it attractively. Don't do it in an ugly manner that's going to make Christians and you look ugly and hard. Do it the way Jesus would do it. Let's pray. Question this morning. Do you find yourself in darkness? Have you ever, have you never surrendered your, your life to Jesus? That's the first step. Believe that he is the light of the world. Believe that he died for your sin. Believe that and give your life to him. Christian, are you in darkness today? You haven't been living consistently You haven't had integrity in your heart. You've been following your own path. Jesus this morning says, follow me and you won't walk in darkness. For others of you, maybe you're in an environment where you're fearful of your job. Or you're a Christian and people know it. And you've been criticized because you hold the values that they don't hold to. Jesus understands. He's been there himself. Look to him. He will see you through. Thank you, Father for sending your son Jesus to be with us, to die for us. God, I pray that you would encourage each person in this room that they would truly know you to be the light of life and live to you wholeheartedly. Take this time of decision, of worship now. And Father, use it to your glory and honor. In Christ's name.